about that band this morning to get us off right. My name is Evan. I'm the online pastor. Thanks for watching with us and thank you for being here. Justin is actually with his dad. He shared a little bit last week. He's going through some health issues, so he went to go serve and be there with his dad and take care of them. So y'all give up for Justin. Let know we're praying and thinking about him. I get to fill in again today, and I'm not the only one that's here that Justin went out of town. Brian Reed also went out of town. They are heading right now to work with Lighthouse, him and his wife Perry, the Dallas campus, Dwayne and Cassie. You might remember we did the Duck Day in March where we're raising money, and Lighthouse serves families whose kids are going through cancer. So they have 37 people from the Simple Church going to volunteer to serve these families this week. Y'all give them a round of applause for that. Be thinking about them as they're going through, and I know they'll be talking about it more as they get back. So Justin basically said, you're up, and we're kind of in between. We don't really have a series. You can talk about whatever you want, so I get to talk about whatever I want. And I'm excited to share with you this morning, this is kind of what I landed on as I got this chance. It's a book I read years back. A guy named Craig Rochelle wrote it called Hashtag Struggles. Following Jesus in a Selfie-Centered World. It's a great book. Craig Rochelle is an incredible communicator. He's a pastor in Oklahoma. And it's basically right in my sweet spot of things that I like to talk about that I think all of us can work on. And it's about technology and how it's affecting us in the world. Because, let's just think to yourself. You don't have to say it out loud. Maybe turn to somebody next to you. Do you feel like right now you are struggling? Right? Maybe. Yeah, some of us. The data in the research indicates you probably are. Odds are, if you're watching here, you found this message. I actually just got to talk to a guy in the lobby who said he's been going back and watching past messages on YouTube. They're all available there. If you're looking to find and you just happen upon this message today, I'm so glad because all of us, I think at different points, can struggle. All of us can go through different stuff. And I'm kind of a data guy. I like knowing things. Like, Justin is more of a feel guy, right? He's a musician. He's more creative. I want to know why the way things are. And so I pulled some research, and the number one thing people said after the message day was, I'm not sure where you were going at the beginning of this message, but it landed really well. So stay with me, all right? We can do this. I believe in y'all. You good? We're okay? All right, good. We're looking for some feedback. Here we go. So the top four concerns in the United States right now, if you ask people, polled Americans, what are you most concerned about? Financial instability, amen, right? Political instability, future pandemics, pretty good reason why. And then global warming are the top four concerns. Wherever you feel like you are, if you had to think to yourself, what is the number one thing right now I'm worried about, concerned about, struggling with? Keep that in your mind, okay? So this is what we're saying most Americans, the majority, are worried about. John Tyson is a pastor I follow. He put this up a couple weeks ago and really hit me that he is trying to minister and work and talk about mental health. The percent of U.S. undergraduates, college students that are struggling with mental illness, he found this research, this data, says anxiety is up 134% since 2010, depression increase, ADHD, bipolar, anorexia, uh, substance abuse, and schizophrenia, all on the rise, dramatic amounts since they've been tracking this in college students for about 10 to 15 years. We hear this, you talk about it, you know people in your life, but what are your struggles? What are you struggling with? We go to parents, right? I'm a parent. I have three beautiful daughters. The number one thing parents are worried about, mental health, also on the top of the list. 40% of parents say they're extremely or very worried about their child struggling with anxiety or depression. 36%, so 76% are at least somewhat concerned about their children's mental health. Being bullied, being kidnapped or abducted. My mom texts me after I made this joke and is like, for the record, this is actually what they teach. But I remember very clearly her recording Oprah on a VHS tape. This is how old I am. I'm sorry. This is a VHS tape. She would record the Oprah special of how not to get abducted, how to serpentine and run. 
right? Anybody seen this where you don't get taken, you go and watch out for things? These are after-school special things my mom would make us watch to not get abducted. So apparently, that's still alive and well with parents worried about their kids getting abducted. Getting beat up or attacked, having problems with drugs or alcohol, these are the top concerns of parents. And I am a parent. I have these three beautiful daughters. Nora just turned eight. Eliza is five. And Willa is six months old. Mallory, my incredible wife, does a great job in being a mom. I'm working on being a dad. But what really tripped me out as we were talking about this Willa was born in November 2022, and she is going to graduate with a very famous person you might remember from a cartoon as a kid. Anybody remember the Jetsons? Right? So the Jetsons, it was, came out in 1962. It was set 100 years in the future, and that means that George Jetson, per the cartoon, was born in 2022. The same as my daughter, Willa. George Jetson is in a graduating class as my daughter, the baby's right now upstairs in the nursery. They are born in the future that the George Jetson is supposed to grow up in. Pretty wild, pretty crazy. So this got me thinking, who's the oldest person in Simple Church? So I looked it up. We have a database. When you fill out a communication card, when you let us know what's going on in your life, we want to email you, send you a text message or an email reminder. And some people in the Simple Church are pretty old. Turns out we had a couple typos because there are people that are over 1,000 years old, apparently, that have visited Simple Church. So I actually went and fixed those, and I found the actual oldest person who ever visited Simple Church and let us know. Miss Elaine was born in 1920 and was a visitor at Simple Church. Pretty incredible. If you're older than that, let me know. I'll correct the record. We'd love to hear from you. That's a long time. Think about the world since 1920, what you know about history. And I'm going to just go off on a sidebar for a moment. Justin's not here. He's over helping his dad, so I can kind of just... Throw this in real fast because I just found this really interesting myself. This is a Twitter thread I found a while back of the New York Times pulling letters that people wrote into the newspaper of complaining that their kids are spoiled. If you've ever said this, you've been guilty, you're not alone because 2021, mom sparked debate after children today are spoiled and indulged compared to kids in the 70s and 80s. Any kids of the 70s and 80s like Justin? Good. They were more at the first hour, so I, hopefully we're going to do this because I don't think they took this really well because they want to look back on it. 1997, people think kids today are spoiled, but it goes back further. So let's keep going. They don't know the meaning of suffering. When I was a child 75 years ago, which means she was born in 1898, they're complaining about the kids then. Let's keep going. We got more. I got the receipts here. Children today are brought up to enjoy only amusements that cost money, such as movies and roller skating. Hating on roller skating in 1943 during World War II, kids were spoiled then. So if you're a grandparent in here, you were born around that time, your parents thought you were spoiled. But it's not just you. Let's keep going back. Today's children spoiled. Are they spoiled? Remove a girl or boy today from the radio, the telephone, furnace heat, making people soft. The automobile, libraries, movies, and other forms of amusement and comfort. But my favorite, I think, 1900, this woman took the time to handwrite a letter and send in to complain about how ruffles in clothing are ruining the children of today. That was her soapbox she has very passionate about. But the oldest one they found, 1895. So literally, almost as long as there has been the printing press and people talking about the next generation... They've kind of been complaining about it. I, it's kind of hard to read here. I'll just give you this one. Most of the children now are spoiled anyway, either by being overly dressed or being petted and praised until they are unbearably pert. I had to look that word up. It means like overindulgent or think highly of themselves. 
Who is to blame for that? And is that the child? As the child is, so will the young lady be unless some entirely different influence is brought to bear upon her training. I was a youth pastor for a long time here. I love the next generation. I think they are doing some incredible things. And I think they kind of get dunked on a lot unfairly. And I think this is just good perspective for me and maybe for you. Let's maybe lay off them a little, okay? It's maybe not the worst generation ever. Somebody gave me in the first hour, nobody said amen. I don't think they like that at 9.30. But I'm off that. Anyway, so parents, concerns, technology, this world we're in is a different time. And I think, again, the data shows that we are not alone. You are not alone if you feel like you are struggling in this. They found research around the world that said people, adults, agree that they are struggling as the change of pace in technology is happening. The U.S. is actually in the lowest that they tested, but all around the world, we're struggling with the change of technology, how fast things are changing. And I gave a couple numbers that I think are really helpful to put it in context. The guy that started IBM, everybody heard of IBM, pretty, pretty important. It was like Apple before Apple for the younger people in the room, okay? This is a huge computer technology. Watson, you might have heard of the Watson computer. Named after this guy, he said in 1943, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. That's just a little off, right? Yeah? This is the computer he was talking about, though. The ENIAC took up a whole room, was one of the major first supercomputers, and this is what my grandmother grew up thinking of computers. This is what a computer was. It was this huge, bulky machine that punch cards. You got to push in all kinds of crazy stuff, and this computer could do 385 operations per second. So think about how fast a second is. 385 calculations. That's pretty, pretty fast. That's pretty impressive. The iPhone 14 that might be in your pocket or you're watching on does 11 trillion of those every second. That's with a T. Think about this. The computers in most of our lifetime are so much faster and do so much more than anything that they could have predicted less than 100 years ago. And then Apple this week, if you're not up in this, you're not into technology, this is kind of my thing, I geek out a little bit, announced what they've been working on for almost eight years, put hundreds of millions of dollars in, what they think the biggest, most important company in the world, the future is going to look like for us. Watch. Introducing Apple Vision Pro. The era of spatial computing is here. When you put on Apple Vision Pro, you see your world and everything in it. Your favorite apps live right in front of you, but now they're in your space. This is Vision OS. Apple's first ever spatial operating system. It's familiar, yet groundbreaking. You navigate with your eyes. Simply tap to select, flick to scroll, and use your voice to dictate. It's like magic. Apps have dimension, react to light, and cast shadows. Even though these spatial experiences are happening inside Vision Pro, it looks, sounds, and feels like they are physically there. Foundational to Apple Vision Pro is that you're not isolated from other people. 
When someone else is in the room, you can see them and they can see you. That is real right now. I have a picture, they're really kind of creepy because what's doing is projecting the camera footage of your eyes out in those goggles as you're walking around and looking at people. And there's a show called Black Mirror that comes out. It's like a modern Twilight Zone. There's new season this week and we were talking this morning. They're like, I don't think they're out of stuff. <laughs> I think we've reached it. They did an episode about this kind of thing eight, ten years ago. And it is wild. If you're in here and you're in your teens, 20s, 30s, this is kind of what we've grown up in. But some of you, you can still remember not having any of this technology at all. And it's gone and changed everything. So what do we do about it? AI is another thing people are talking about a lot right now. We're trying to figure out what that means. ChatGBT is this app that came out and is the fastest app in the history of the world to reach 100 million users in less than two months. Think about 100 million people and how overwhelming that number seems. It's changing everything. We got to play with a little bit of AI technology. Caleb's on our staff and we were looking at this product that you feed your voice into it and it can replicate your voice. This is a consumer thing you can go download right now. And so I did it. I wanted to try and see. So this is a video of my little avatar, but the voice is not really me. Watch. Hello, this is the AI version of Evan. Evan is not actually saying any of this. His voice was uploaded into an app and now I am replicating it. Isn't that weird? Pretty trippy. It's not perfect, but it's close. My parents called me a couple weeks ago and said, you will not believe we just went to Jalapeno Tree in Tyler, Texas and got seated by a robot. Not like cool New York, Los Angeles stuff. They've got robot servers putting people at tables in the jalapeno tree. All of this stuff is going and changing and just wild. And I believe that as a Christian, as a pastor, as the church, we have a responsibility to try to figure out what this is going to do to us. How is it affecting us? There's a great documentary came out, I think two years ago now, that was on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And they asked the people who were going and working in Silicon Valley that have kind of had some issues with how things have gone about social media and what they did. And the results, not super encouraging. Watch. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. A lot of people think Google's just a search box and Facebook's just a place to see what my friends are doing. What they don't realize is there's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. I was the co-inventor of the Facebook like button. I was the president of Pinterest. Google. Twitter. Instagram. There were meaningful changes happening around the world because of these platforms. I think we were naive about the flip side of that coin. We get rewarded by parts, likes, thumbs up, and we conflate that with value and we conflate it with truth. A whole generation is more anxious, more depressed. I always felt like fundamentally it was a force for good. I don't know if I feel that way anymore. Facebook discovered that they were able to affect real world behavior and emotions without ever triggering the user's awareness. They are completely clueless. 
fake news spreads six times faster than true news. We're being bombarded with rumors. If everyone's entitled to their own facts, there's really no need for people to come together. In fact, there's really no need for people to interact. There's really no need for people to interact. And I had people, couple people come up after the service earlier and like, that's not, I'm not on it. I'm not on any of that stuff. I'm not going to use it. It's fine. And I think there's something to that. But I also think that it's really hard for the next generations behind us to completely just pretend like it's not there. So how are we going to help shepherd and walk through this modern world that we live in? Because Google gave us search results. You can look these up. These are things that are trending for people that are using technology. Where to meet friends, huge increase the last couple of years. How to meet people, giant spike post 2020. How to stay in contact with someone, social groups near me. We're the first people in the history of the world who were able to see inside the lives of other people in real time. You can see what your friends, your neighbors, people you don't even like are doing. We're more connected than ever before Study after study after study show that the more social media that we use, the less happy people are. Why? Craig Rochelle, the author of this book, is a great book. Highly recommend. Hashtag struggles. If you're looking to read something this summer, need a summer beach read. He said, never before have so many people had so much and felt so dissatisfied. Why? Because A, people who created these apps are trying to make money. After I watched this documentary and some people we knew talked about are like, I never thought about this, but they said in the documentary that if it's free, that means you're the product. If what you're using is not charging you something, they are making money off of you using it. And as somebody who's a little more tech savvy, I was like, yeah, you gotta understand that's the agreement, but that blew some people's minds and maybe you've never thought about it. They have an incentive to keep you on the app, to keep your attention, to keep you moving, and especially with younger generation as kids, we're trying to teach them this. I think we have a responsibility to help understand why these things are happening. And a guy named Simon Sinek is an author, speaker, is a great person on this subject, explains the science of why kids and maybe some adults, if we're honest, have such a hard time with this. Watch. Right. Now let's add in technology. We know that engagement with social media and our cell phones releases a chemical called dopamine. That's why when you get a text, it feels good, right? So you know, we've all had it where you're feeling a little bit down or feeling a bit lonely, and so you send out 10 texts to 10 friends, you know, hi, 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 hi. Because <laughs> it feels good when you get a response, right? right? It's why we count the likes, it's why we go back 10 times to see if, and if it's going, if our, my Instagram is growing slower, I would, I, I, did I do something wrong? Do they not like me anymore, right? The, the trauma for young kids to be unfriended, right? Because we know when you get it, you get a hit of dopamine, which feels good. It's why we like it, it's why we keep going back to it. Dopamine is the exact same chemical that makes us feel good when we smoke, when we drink, and when we gamble. In other words, it's highly, highly addictive. Right? We have age restrictions on smoking, gambling, and uh, alcohol, and we have no age restrictions on social media and cell phones, which is the equivalent of opening up the liquor cabinet and saying to our teenagers, hey, by the way, this adolescence thing, if it gets you down. <laughs> but that's basically what's happening. That's basically what's happening, right? That's basically what happened. You have an entire generation that has access to an addictive, numbing 
chemical called dopamine through social media and cell phones as they're going through the high stress of adolescence. Why is this important? Almost every alcoholic discovered alcohol when they were teenagers. When we're very, very young, the only approval we need is the approval of our parents. And as we go through adolescence, we make this transition where we now need the approval of our peers. Very frustrating for our parents, very important for us. It allows us to acculturate outside of our immediate families into the broader tribe, right? It's a highly, highly stressful and anxious period of our lives, and we're supposed to learn to rely on our friends. Supposed to. But if you've got the easy, cheaper way to just go and feel connected, of course we're going to take it. It's human nature. It's not intuitive to think about this until it's years down the road and you look back and see. As a youth pastor here at Simple Church for years talking about this, I made the point this is something we have to try to help this generation work through. And if you're a parent, a grandparent that feels like, ah, it's not, I don't even know, I don't understand, I'm not going to do it, who is going to help to talk through how to do this? Because every time that we seek that instant affirmation, that dopamine hit in social media, our body is learning to ignore that feeling, that longing for connection that I believe all of us have to drive you to real friendship. Because more people started watching friends than having friends in the last 20, 30 years. And Craig Rochelle in the book, I think, sums it up perfectly. As one sentence says that we live for likes, but deep down inside, we're longing to be loved. And turning to the screen, turning to the social media, turning to these other things. I'm pro-technology. I love this. I think that it is still a lot of good it can do. I'm optimistic about the future, but we cannot just push to the side and pretend like there's not the downsides. Because it's like drinking salt water. When you look at salt water, what happens is the water content versus the salt. The salt actually pulls out more of the water in your molecules than you actually get water back in. So the more that you drink, the more water that you go, that's the reason that you can't drink the salt water because it goes and ends up killing you when it feels like it should be quenching a thirst that you can't live without. Just one other side note on this, working with teenagers for a long time, being around people and now raising kids, it's not just kids either. (laughs) Adults like to point the finger and we like to be like those people in the last hundred years writing in, complaining about the next generation a lot. But this is a little kid, a short story that they wrote for a project I found. My wish is to become a smartphone. My parents love their smartphones very much. They care about the smartphone so much that sometimes they forget to care about me. When my father comes home from work tired, he has time for his smartphone, but not for me. When my parents are doing some important work and the smartphone rings, they will attend to the phone with a single ring, but not listen to me. Even when I'm crying, they play games on their smartphone, but not with me. When they are talking to someone on their phone, they never listen to me, even if I'm telling them something important. So my wish is to become a smartphone. Ouch. (laughs) As a dad who comes home tired some days, want to zone out, it's pretty convicting. So I know we're into this deep, and I know you're still here, hanging in, we're here, but I've not opened the Bible one time yet. And I think for me, it's just so important to set this up so we understand with eyes wide open the world that we're in, the culture that we're in. And I still believe that the Bible today can teach us something about 
the technological advanced society that we're in. So I pulled one interaction, one part of Jesus, John chapter 4. John was called the beloved disciple. His gospel talks more about people and stories and small details than any of the other four gospels. And he tells about this interaction that Jesus has with one woman. It starts off, as he left Judea, Jesus went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Sychar, you tell me. But I pulled a map. We don't know this, right? You study. This is what I get to do for a living. And I'm so thankful that I have the time to find these things. Because Sychar, right here, the little dot in the middle, where Jesus traveled, are all these red things. Jerusalem's down here. Jericho, he would walk through. Nazareth, where he's from. All of this just helps to make it real to understand that the Jewish people typically would go all the way around, out of their way to avoid even walking in Samaria. We remember the story of the Good Samaritan. If you've heard that phrase, a Samaritan is someone who lived in Samaria. They hated the Jewish people, Jesus' people, because they were considered half-breeds. They were considered less than. Their families, their ancestors had gone and married the pagans, the non-Jewish people. They betrayed and hurt the people that followed God and did the right thing. So Samaritans were looked down on, were less than in society. And most Jewish people, especially Jewish men, would avoid any contact with a Samaritan at all cost. But not Jesus. We'll go back. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. This is important. These details John writes, a real person writing these letters down to be saved for thousands of years to tell us about Jesus. Noon, hottest part of the day. We understand that. That's still true today. And in that culture, in that time, most women were responsible for getting water. They didn't have plumbing. They didn't have pipes. You'd have to walk to a well pull the water up and carry it in heavy buckets, gallons and gallons of water, miles back to your place that you live to clean, to wash, to drink. And most of the time they did it early in the morning. It was when it was the coolest and it was actually a social gathering. Women would meet at the well, they'd talk, catch up, compare notes. It was a chance to interact and almost all women in that culture would have gone early in the morning, got their water, dozens if not hundreds of women in this town, but not at noon would have been the worst time of the day for somebody to get water. Jesus knows that. When he's there, a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Already shocking, scandalous, he would talk to this woman, even acknowledge she exists as beneath him, as a rabbi, as a teacher of the Bible. She would have been taken aback. She would not think anybody's there at noon. She knows what she's doing coming at this time, trying to avoid people. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Duh. Right? She knows that. He knows that. But she just can't even wrap her head around why he's talking to her. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus starts to change the script. He starts talking about God. He brings us up in this conversation this woman, again, would have had red flags because anybody who was godly, anybody who followed God would never talk to this woman. So she's, all, she's weirded out by this. Sir, she said, you have nothing to draw with, no bucket. He doesn't have anything. And the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jacob, a hero of the faith, the Jewish people renowned Jacob, almost insulting to ask, that, do you think this guy is better than Jacob? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water, the well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows this woman is thirsty, but not just for a drink of water. She's thirsty for longing, for connection, for love. And we're going to hear more about her story. But I believe that God made all of us with this thirst, this longing inside of us that can't be satisfied by the things of the world. I've seen it, my friends, I've seen people chase money and jobs and status, lose their families now as I get a little bit older, get divorced. I've seen people go and try to chase as celebrities and pop culture. All the things we think are what we're looking for never satisfy. So the woman comes back. She's having this interesting conversation with Jesus. She's like, what is this guy? I can't figure this out. She said, sir, give me this living water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, which in this culture at this time is so unbelievably scandalous. Everybody would have gasped as they read this because to be married once and divorced was punishable by death. You could go and lose everything. You had no rights as a woman. And that she's been married five times would have just been unbelievable. But Jesus knows that. What you have just said is quite true. And in this moment, in this pivotal moment where Jesus knows her, Jesus knows who she is, in all the ways he could have responded, he chooses to model empathy. Empathy is kind of a buzzword. It's kind of trendy right now in culture. And the definition of it is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another person. And again, as a data nerd, as somebody that likes this kind of stuff, I found the best study is the University of Michigan has asked every incoming freshman since 1979 questions about their empathy level. It's something they've tracked in their department there at the school and college students incoming today are 40% less empathetic compared to their parents' generation. And Brene Brown is a speaker, an author that goes and does a lot of work about empathy and talking about it. So before we hear what Jesus actually says, I want us to understand when we talk about this word empathy, what it really is about. And she did a TED Talk that they turned into an animated little video, and it shows empathy I think, in a really practical way. Watch. So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant, and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective-taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. 
And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space where someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, I'm down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. I love that. And one more quote to sum it up. The power of empathy is I'm in it with you. I'm not here to fix you. I'm here to feel with you and let you know that you're not alone. And as I read the Gospels and as I learn more about Jesus, I truly believe that Jesus modeled this for us. And a hurt, broken world needs us that say we're Christians to model and show this is empathetic. Not tell them how bad they are, not how messed up things are, how the social media is ruining them, yada, 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 yada. How spoiled this generation is. But they're drinking the salt water and they don't know why it's killing them. So there's a show called The Chosen. If people criticize, say stuff about it, it's not the gospel, but I think it paints a beautiful picture of what could have happened if we had a film crew follow Jesus around. In this interaction with the woman at the well, to tell you the end of the story, instead of seeing it on paper, comes alive. As I wrap up and just think about how I would have responded, how you would have responded to this woman. And instead of serving a high priest that cannot feel and relate to us as human beings, Jesus models who God is in this one interaction. Watch. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. 
But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit, and the time is coming and is now here that it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me, I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. <sighs> and you know these things, because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon, just the heart. <laughs> you promise? I promise. Everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ. <laughs> hey, wait! <laughs> your water? You forgot your um. Come to your man. You told me everything. I 
That's right. You can clap for that. Simple Church started 16 years ago to be a place where it's okay to not be okay. And depending on how you grew up and your background and church and religion and denominations and all of it gets so complicated. But at the end of the day, we think that Jesus changes lives. John 4, 29, she said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Orthodox tradition believes that that woman, the woman at the well who's not named in the Bible, would go on to become Saint Fotini. She would be baptized by the disciples. She would become an evangelist speaking through the Roman Empire, would help convert the entire Roman Empire, the most powerful force in the world, to Christianity. Her family would be captured, tortured, and killed by Emperor Nero, who would use Christians as torches, light them on fire, do the most horrific things imaginable, put them in the Colosseum. And it's said that she was actually martyred. She became a saint, was killed by being thrown down a well that was empty because they would know her testimony. And as a little joke, a little twist of irony there, she would be killed for her faith at a well which changed everything for her. One encounter with Jesus changed her life. John writing it was changed, who wrote the letter that would tell us thousands of years later was changed. And Jesus, even in the world today, even with the technology and the, all the other stuff, still can change me and change you. I got to go to an event this week with church planners that are trying to start churches. Got to go encourage them to be there. It was a great week. Met a guy named Joe. Joe's in his 50s. And 10 years ago, he was a seminary student trying to go and follow God with his life. And his mother-in-law asked him to co-sign on a loan to help a business. Being a good son-in-law and wanting to stay married, he decided to do that. A couple years later, as he's in seminary class trying to follow God, do this thing with his life, he gets a phone call, ignores it, gets another phone call, ignores it from a number he doesn't know, finally picks up, is the FBI coming to arrest him. It turns out his mother-in-law and his sister-in-law were working together in their company to embezzle hundreds of thousands of dollars. And as he went to court, even though there was no evidence that he had done anything wrong, the judge said that there's too much money on the line and I can't let you off and spend a year in federal prison. Joe's son was in the army and he's not allowed to go on the base to visit now as a federal convict. And Joe is still choosing to follow Jesus, to still go and try to start a church and reach hurting lost people. And you can fill in the blank. It's somebody you know, it's somebody in your life. Maybe it's not somebody you know and you found Simple Church, you got invited. Whatever your circumstance is, whatever has happened to you, you've been married five times, Jesus still loves you. Jesus wants you to turn to him and wants to help you to navigate the world that we're in. So who is Jesus to you? Jesus knows everything about us. We believe he loves us anyway. And John, who wrote that book, the Gospel of John, also wrote letters, letters later. In 1 John, he said it this way. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God. He loved us first. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice to make right our sins, the things we mess up, the mistakes we've made. And dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So what do you do about it today? We're gonna wrap up, we're gonna leave, we're gonna go eat lunch, you get busy, life happens. The first thing is if you don't know Jesus, today's your day. You can start following him and he knows everything you've done. He knows what you did last night. He knows what you did last week. And he still loves you. And he still wants you to turn to him, to help satisfy what you can never satisfy with anything else. If you know Jesus and you're lonely, you are struggling, you've become a Christian, things aren't great right now, ask and pray for people to show up in your life. As a church, we want to be here. Justin, over and over again, since Simple Church started, his favorite verse has been that the sick don't need a doctor. I mean, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. That we want to be a place that you can come, and it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. And if you do know Jesus and you feel like you're in a good place, we all have our struggles, but right now you're like, I'm, I think I'm okay. Things are all right. I pray that we would be a church, a place, a people of empathy that need so badly someone to come alongside them when you go eat lunch today that they wouldn't think that the Christian people coming out of church are the worst shift. That we would be able to go and be a light in the world that needs us so badly. I pray that we could do that. If you're looking for a place to start, you don't know what to believe, I'm about to pray for us. I'm about to lead us in a prayer. And if you've never asked Jesus into your heart, you want to become a Christian today, it is very simple but it's just the start of something that's not easy, but it's worth it. If you're struggling to feel like you've disconnected from God, you got back here to church, you're watching this message online, read the Bible, spend some time this week. There's a reading plan. I put a link, it's on our Instagram, our Facebook, that goes along with this topic that I think is great called Liking Jesus. And as the world is changing faster than ever before, I still believe and I have hope that Jesus hasn't changed but we can help the world that needs it so badly. Let's pray. God, I come to you and I'm so incredibly grateful that you loved me first. I didn't have to do anything to earn it. God, I don't deserve it. And for every person listening today, every person watching, you love them. And you love us enough to not want to stay where we are. And if anybody in this room has never asked you to be the Lord of their life, to follow you, God, all the things they may have heard growing up, maybe they're just completely new to this church thing and they don't know where to start. It's a simple prayer, God, between you and them. They would admit that they've messed up, that they've made mistakes, that they've sinned. They believe, God, that you are who you say you are. You are the Christ. You are the hope of the world. You are God's one and only son. You died on a cross for us to take away our sins and make things right. And they would confess that they want you to be the Lord of their life. God, if they pray that prayer today, it says that the heavens rejoice for one lost person who comes home. And I pray that they would connect with us, that we could help them to give them resources, God, to connect them on this path, to take these steps. But ultimately it's between you and them, Father, and only they know what's in their heart. And for the rest of us that have been Christians, some of us for a very long time, I pray we would be reminded today that there is a hurting, broken world that is pouring the salt water in, looking for anything to satisfy. 
and that we do have the answer, we do have the truth, and we would go out in how we interact today and this week in our jobs, with our families, at schools, and all the things, and remember that we are supposed to represent you, Father, and that we could be like Jesus, and we can try to be more like you every day. We love you. Amen.